Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, and I'm really looking forward to this week's broadcast. Each week, we try to present you with the most diverse group of panelists and speakers that one can find anywhere. These range from theologians to portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, politicians, you name it. If they've written a book, we're going to have them on air talking about it. And by the way, we're not going to follow a scripted, organized discussion, but rather have a free-form discussion so that we can talk about the things that are top of mind, and more importantly, ask the questions that you would probably have asked yourself. Feel free to recommend the show to friends and colleagues, and with that, let's get on with this week's edition of Unhedged. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Unhedged. This week, once again, we're graced with the presence of Mr. Douglas Borthwick. Douglas, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? Good. You must be tickled pink, given where we last left this. It seems every time we talk, we always end the conversation with the potential for the market to go into crazy land. Hmm. And uh, fast forward, I mean, it seems like we're very much there today. I mean, I think we have an open book in terms of everything we could truly talk about between currencies, fixed income, politics. So tell me, where would you like to start? Well, I think I think we should really start talking about the dollar and the strength of the dollar and what can the U.S. do to weaken it. Okay, let's go. Well, you know, President Trump's got a bit of a conundrum here. He's gone out there to the market. He said, look, we're not going to intervene. And uh, he obviously sees that the strong dollar is bad, not just for the U.S., but for you know emerging markets as a whole. And the market's sort of in a quandary because if the U.S. doesn't intervene, what can it do? And there's a couple of scenarios that I've sort of pitched to the administration, and uh, I'd like to you know go over like two of them. Sure. The first one is in 2010, Japan looked at China and said, you know, the Chinese are doing something to our currency. We don't like it. They're buying JGBs aggressively, and that's pushing up the value of the yen. Mm-hmm. And in 2012, the Chinese turned around and said, you know what, we're going to counter this and sterilize this buying of JGBs by starting to buy Chinese fixed income. Mm-hmm. And so the Chinese aggressively went in and started buying Chinese fixed income. It was only about a quarter of what the Japanese were buying, uh, what the Chinese were buying of Japanese fixed income. But they went in there and they were the first G7 country to start buying Chinese fixed income. By doing so, they said they were, quote, you know, uh, reorganizing their reserves and that's sort of a, a Chinese saying where the Chinese constantly will buy the reserves of other countries or fixed income in other countries and say they're just reorganizing their uh, their foreign exchange uh, holdings. And one thing that the U.S. hasn't done ever is gone out and bought fixed income of other countries. And it's, you know, it, it's, it's sort of very strange in that when you look at, you know, foreign exchange reserves for every country other than the U.S., they all have 60 percent dollars and the rest is in different currencies. Now, South Korea and Japan both realized the Chinese were buying their currency fixed income aggressively. And so they turned around and, and pushed it back on the Chinese, doing so sterilizing the, uh, the inflows into their, um, into their uh, fixed income markets and pushing up their currencies. 
And what the U.S. could do is it could turn around, and this is something they can do without congressional approval, they could turn around at some point and say, listen, well, we understand that you need to buy U.S. fixed income. We understand that you know, the U.S. fixed income is essentially a Geffen good and that there's not very much AAA paper with the liquidity that the U.S. Treasury is involved. But we're actually going to start uh, you know, reallocating our reserves as well because we're very long dollars. We're obviously the most long dollars. But no one looks at, 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 uh, at, at Germany or Japan or China and says, well, you know, I understand you're very long yuan or yen, but it's strange that you're buying fixed income of other countries. It's only the U.S. that has decided not to buy fixed income of other countries. And I would say that the one way that the U.S. could turn around is to suggest to the market that they're going to start buying fixed income in other countries, notably China. And what that would do is essentially take the bid out of the U.S. dollar and switch it back so the U.S. could start to weaken. Now, I'm not the only one that's thinking this. But instead of outright buying of fixed income, there's two U.S. senators, Josh Hawley and Tammy Baldwin, who are leading a bipartisan effort to restore competitive to the U.S. exports and boost American manufacturers and farmers by suggesting a tax on uh, foreigners' holdings of U.S. Uh, fixed income. And I think that that's really important because this is the second thing, is the U.S., instead of buying fixed income in China or elsewhere, it could turn around and institute a tax on foreign holdings of U.S. fixed income. And what that would do is essentially halt or at least slow down the buying of U.S. fixed income and thus the, the strength of the dollar. And I think that that's something that the U.S. should seriously look into. And I think that's something that's going to come down the pipeline. And that's a way for the U.S. to intervene without saying they're intervening. And it's also something that's given G20 approval, given that uh, Japan's already been doing it. So I think that that's sort of the next thing on the docket. The interesting thing, though, I mean, haven't they technically already kind of thrown the kitchen sink at this thing? I mean, there, there's been, it, from a layman's perspective, you look at this, I mean, between between the president, between Treasury, they've, they've tried to talk it down. Navarro's come up with a crazy statement here and there in terms of what he would like. I mean, is this really like the last ditch effort they have to get the dollar down? I mean, everything else in the past would have worked, except here, to, to your point, this seems like it's a conundrum that the dollar still stay bid. Well, one thing we do know is that jawboning the U.S. dollar lower from the president hasn't done anything. And when Treasury gets involved and talks about you know, how China is manipulating the currency, again, it's done very little. But what the U.S. needs to do, and this has been, you know, I think, uh, the bane of the U.S.'s existence, is that Congress needs to actually start passing some laws that actually helps support what the president wants. And what Congress has done over the last 10 years is relied on the Federal Reserve to cut rates to get the U.S. moving and that sort of thing. What Congress really needs to do now is say, look, U.S. treasuries are still yielding much, much more than any other country in the world, yet everyone wants to own U.S. treasuries. So the question is, well, if that's the case, why is the U.S. offering 1.5% on U.S. 10 years? Why aren't we offering zero like everyone else? There's still a huge right. premium that the U.S. is offering to pay people for holding U.S. treasuries when the reality is folks need to hold U.S. treasuries. So we can either cut rates all the way down to zero, like you're seeing in Europe, and negative rates, or we could start taxing on an equivalency basis that 1.5% that the U.S. is offering to others. And I think that that's probably the way that we should go. Interesting. And where where... Just uh, let's take another step back from the from the currency side of this and looking at China in terms of everything going on with, uh, you know, trade and tariffs. I mean, is there an is it 
even conceivable that there'll be an outcome of this before the 2020 election? Or has has the dynamic of that dialogue actually tipped in China's favor? And is China now looking at this saying, this president's vulnerable, he has no more leverage. You know what, let's just wait this out and, and just continue to keep the pressure there, you know, to and through the 2020 elections. Well, the U.S. does have leverage. Um, but the problem is that that leverage is what I'd call like the nuclear option where the nuclear option would be to say to China, you can no longer use SWIFT to settle your dollar uh, payments. Obviously, by saying that, it would mean that, that China would have been in a bit of a quandary and they'd own all these dollars that they, and, and treasuries that they couldn't sell because they were you know, off of the, uh, the ability to sell dollars. I think that the, the reality of that is probably it's not going to happen. So I think that it's much more realistic to expect that we'd end up taxing them for owning treasuries and right now, what we're doing is we're taxing the U.S. populace for buying Chinese goods. It probably makes a lot more sense for the U.S. economy to tax the Chinese and the Japanese who have now actually overtaken China in terms of U.S. Treasury ownership and end up taxing them for buying U.S. fixed income. And mm-hmm. so what that would do is it would take the pressure off of the U.S. populace, who seems to be getting a little bit worried about spending more to buy a Chinese good. And instead, it taxes directly the Chinese person and the Chinese institutions that are buying U.S. treasuries, because it really is a manipulation for the Chinese to turn around and say, look, we're reallocating our reserves. We're buying more dollars. But by buying more dollars, it pushes up the value of the dollar. And what that does is makes U.S. companies less competitive. And so the U.S. needs to find a way to tax China and stop them from doing that. And the one way to do that is to obviously tax them directly for owning U.S. treasuries. So let, let, let's now reverse engineer this in terms of where, if at all, the U.S. economy is. I mean, is are, are we now just in a place with the U.S. economy where, and again, you and I have talked about this before, we were always concerned about where, where growth was, how real was that growth, how much of this was just corporates buying their own their own stock as a function of where uh, where debt levels were. I mean, have we seen the market highs at this point? Because all of this just seems like fiscal gamesmanship to just nip and tuck quarter by quarter. But have we now reached a peak, a point where the markets have peaked, they're going to settle in, and in fact, the, the recession that economists have been talking about is now inevitable? No, I, I think that you know, economists talk about recessions and they talk about inverted yield curves. And I think that's based on, in the past, we've had really a market that's set where interest rates are. And this is different in that the market doesn't set where interest rates are, but rather the government is setting where interest rates are. When the Fed is you know, the largest purchaser or the largest machine in treasuries, then it's not really the market that's setting that rate. If the true market was setting the rate, then the risk-free rate, which is the U.S. rate, would not be higher than most countries in the world. And the fact that the U.S. interest rate is higher than, you know, at times Greece, um, Obviously, there's a problem with how interest rates are being calculated right now. Either it's a problem with how the U.S. is pricing its treasuries or the U.S. is no longer the risk-free rate. And I would probably go with the the former in that there's a problem with how the market is pricing U.S. treasuries. And and let's extend that. There, There today, or I should say, I always get confused with the days sometimes being in Singapore relative to the States. But there's been discussion in the past 36 hours that, in fact, Treasury should start thinking about 50-year and 100-year debt. What are your thoughts on that, given where, where rates are now? Well, I think that every country 
should look to borrow as much as possible when interest rates are as low as they are. And this, you know, goes into your, your earlier comment on corporates. You know, corporate buybacks, it, it makes a lot of sense. If you've got a lot of cash sitting on the table in your corporate and the executives there are paid based on where the stock price is and interest rates are close to zero, why wouldn't you borrow as much as possible to buy back your stock? Because right now, that's what the market's telling you. That's what the legalese is telling you. It's telling you to borrow, 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 buy back your stock and push up the value of it. So until we change the law on buybacks, I'd expect that you'd continue to see as interest rates drop in the U.S., you'd continue to see corporates borrowing and buying back their equities and equities will continue to move up. I'm not that concerned about the inverted yield curve right now because I see it as being interest rates where they are, where they're set because they're not set by the market. It's sort of like a, an, an inefficient indicator. That's interesting. That's a, that, that gets back to all that stuff we were uh, drilled when we were un, all undergraduates in terms of what, what factors are contributing to the shape of the yield curve. And uh, it's interesting on that point. So your view is that the, really we're just seeing more of a, of a government construct with the, with the yield curve versus something that might be more a function of market dynamics and efficient pricing. Oh, for sure. I mean, you and I, we both went to Carnegie Mellon. We were both taught there in economics classes, you crack open your book and you were taught something about the risk-free rate. And the risk-free free rate was always defined as the United States. And that was seen as being like the lowest interest rate you could get. And at the same time, that was risk-free, you get your money back. And now you've got Greek rates and Italian rates and other rates that are lower than the US. And you have to wonder, you know, what is the risk-free rate anymore? Because the risk-free rate for us was always the center of all financial modeling. When we sit there and we calculate options pricing, you, you type in the risk-free rate. Is the risk-free rate really the mm-hmm. U.S. rate anymore? And I think that that's mm-hmm. like the biggest question we have right now when it comes to financial modeling and economics. What does that mean then in terms of the next systemic shock that could come in here? Because uh, Jeffrey Gunlock's been uh, a little bit away from that opinion and and a little bit more pessimistic about the outcome here. Um, I, I mean, how do how do you and I counter the folks that are in the recession camp so deeply that are now saying, "Look, it's an inverted yield curve." Uh, more importantly, as you and I have seen, uh, especially in the case of Singapore, Singapore now signaling that it is in fact in a recession uh, uh, in terms of last quarter's results, and Singapore being kind of a bellwether for Asia Pacific. You know, are, are we really there, or or do you see kind of a a, a bounce or a dead cat bounce? Uh, and, and, you know, a continuation, I don't want to call it a rally, but maybe a slow move sideways of the market. Because um, I, I got to be candid, you know, out here, folks are very, very pessimistic. It, it is 100, you know, you see, we're already seeing layoffs, we're already seeing institutions hunkering down, we're already seeing folks that thought they had investment budget, it's getting pulled back. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of looking at 2020 as the year that, that this thing's just going to grind to a halt. Yeah, and, and I remember like, you know, two years ago, I was sitting in a round table with Jim Cramer and it was going around the table, like who thinks we're going into recession? And my view was, well, I don't. And I don't think the stock market's going to collapse either. And the reason is because governments won't let that happen anymore. You know, I think that there's so much more of a, a government hand when it comes down to where equity prices are or where it comes down to interest rates, that it's it's less of a an indication. I guess that comes down to the whole, like it's different this time. And I think that it is mm-hmm. different this time in that there's not many rates that you can look at, whether they're interest rates or equity prices, that you can't point to some sort of government interference. Even in U.S. equities, 
you know, there are governments that are buying U.S. equities and they're buying them because they're intervening in their currencies and they have to buy something in the U.S. and they don't want to buy U.S. treasuries. So they're buying U.S. Uh, equities instead. And whether that's Japan that's buying U.S. equities or Switzerland that's buying U.S. equities, the fact is, you know, folks are buying equities and they kind of have to because they're looking for some sort of yield over that. The fact is that the U.S. Treasury, because there are so there are so much fewer AAA bonds out there anymore, you know, the bond has become that Geffen good in that there's no other alternative for it. So folks have to keep on buying it, even the price continues to rise. And I think we're going to be in this sort of zone for quite some time. It's interesting. And I, I, I go back to um, your point earlier in terms of the risk-free rate. It, it's fascinating now where offline, and again, I, I, I've tried to get people on the show who, who do this at, at the agencies and, and uh, the folks at the banks who do this. But it's funny kind of publicly how they, they rate debt and talk about debt. And then to your point, they, they continue to talk about uh, the U.S. as the risk-free rate. And, and it's, it's interesting because now you know, when you look at the ability for certain institutions and sovereigns to actually pay back their debt relative to the states, it really calls into question the entire framework. And, and I think there's a, it seems like there's almost like a big misalignment in terms of how risk is being priced today. And, and I, it just worries me that, that, you know, to your point where you're seeing, you know, candidly countries that, that, uh, you know, the fact that to your point, like Italy and Greece having rates lower than the States. I mean, the, the, it reminds me, Doug, of like years ago when you saw these dot com zombies that were out there that were publicly traded where they had more cash on their balance sheet than they did in terms of the actual market cap that they were trading at. And it, it seems like here there's well, an arbitrage, the, the arbitrage, but I just can't is, put my finger on it. You no, know, you can look at the WeWork IPO and you can look at that thing forever and ever and look back at the textbook we had when we were kids. <laughs> and, and see that there's not much here that you want to buy, but folks seem to think that it's a great deal. And WeWork isn't the only one. And that, that reminds yeah. me of the dot-com yeah. era where you know, you're talking about growth. And back then it was sort of like there's, you know, there's so many subscribers or there's so many eyes that are watching this. And so you've got to buy into it. Obviously, it worked for Facebook and they found a way to, to get into it. You know, but WeWork, can t- like I look at that, I look at the, the, the pitch book and, and I can't see the value in the proposition. And and I don't think it's it's because of I've got old eyes. I think it's because I'm still looking at things the way that we used to in our financial textbooks. And the reality is, I think you and I would probably still look at things in those eyes as opposed to in a new finance world. And then this new finance world, to be honest, I feel uncomfortable in, in some of the, the things that you can buy out there. Now, what I do like, though, in this environment, I think there's a lot of miners that have been beaten down and I give a good example would be like SCCO, Southern Peru Copper. You know, copper goes up and down on the basis of how's, how's the trade deal going with China. But the reality is, you know, it's been beaten down, but I think it'll come right back and it shows you a nice dividend. So it's something like that I'm very interested in. And I'm much more interested in something like that, something that I understand as opposed to something like WeWork, where I don't understand it at all or beyond meat, which was like, you know, the, the darling of the media over the last couple of weeks. But the reality is, you know, it's trading at a multiple that, that's crazy compared to, you know, what its market access is. Well, you know, you, you bring up a good point. And I, I, I would say just as and again, I know I'm not uh, uh, poking the bear here with you, but but I think I think Facebook is a or, or even Google in terms of when when and how they went public. Th- those were different because the the the. Uh, 
you know, you, I, I, for lack of a better term, in your gut and when you were looking at the financials, you knew there was a bigger there there in terms of where they were going and what they could do. Like Facebook, when, in fact, both companies, when they went public, you knew there was the opportunity for further expansion. But to your point on WeWork, I mean, I can't get my arms around it. And it's one of these things, Doug, where it seems like it's the most obvious thing in the world where there are other real estate companies who do the exact same thing. They just don't have the marketing panache that WeWork does. And somehow, uh, uh, you know, they're 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 trading at this ridiculous multiple relative to a real comp that that says no, you 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 just can't be. And you know, to your point, beyond me, the other the other thing that we find fascinating, and we're seeing it out here, is all the rideshare companies. So you know, now what's interesting in China is that we're seeing you know you had Lyft in the U.S., which was effectively a transport company. Then you had Uber come out, which was transport plus food. And now Didi in China is now saying, well, we're going to be you know those two, and we're going to be an investment firm. And it seems like these companies are still chasing this potential revenue model relative to their you know their their client base, but it just seems horribly efficient inefficient, excuse me. And, and I don't, I don't think you're crazy. I, I, I really think we're going to look back at this period of time and, and, you know, especially I think the WeWork IPO could be the bellwether for, you know, that was the, that was the e-toys of this generation. I really see that as the sock puppet for, for, uh, for folks today. Well, I, th- I think that your, your, your term marketing panache is, is dead on in that it seems that finance these days is less about the numbers and the balance sheet and the cash flows and much more about the marketing panache. And can you get CNBC to do a cover story on it? Can you get it out there in the market to build up some sort of excitement? Can you get a couple of uh, really big early round VCs involved to, to start buying it? And if you can, then you can sell it out there in the market, but it still doesn't make sense when it comes down to finance guys like us that like to look at numbers. And now, and now with that in the, razzmatazz of, of marketing. How vulnerable is this president? I mean, you're, you're back east. You're there in the tri-state area. Apparently, they're going to name the street uh, Barack Obama Avenue in front of uh, Trump Tower, or at least they're trying to. I mean, is he really vulnerable in 2020? And is all this talk about Scaramucci now turning on him and, and other folks who were big, big advocates of his now turning on him? Is this, is this really serious or is this just noise? I think it's a lot of noise. I think the Scaramucci... When you look at him, he's always been about himself and uh, marketing. And you know, these days, you know, the, the hush hush is that it, you know he's trying to get his family into the Real Housewives of New York type thing. And <laughs> I didn't know that. Getting press for that, you know, maybe that'll help push her into the, the limelight. But I think that the reality is there's not much that Trump can say that's going to get a Trump supporter to turn around these days and say, you know what, that's it. I'm not going to vote for him anymore. And when he goes out there and he does his trade shows and he and he talks to the people, he gets huge, huge crowds. And obviously they're put down by others, but you know there still is not a front runner that's that's against him. And you know the whole like you know naming a street Barack Obama Avenue or whatever is something that De Blasio is probably pushing right now because he's trying to run as the Democratic front runner, which obviously right. isn't going to happen. So that's him trying some marketing uh, thing as well. But I, I don't see Warren, you know, taking in the slot. I don't see Kamala Harris taking the slot against him. And I know Biden just has so many gaffes right now. And the thing about Biden is when he says something wrong, it's called a gaffe. When Trump says something wrong, it's called being racist. And, right. uh, <laughs> and, 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 and I think that the reality is the Democrats are sort of 
fighting against each other so much that it's just providing fodder for Trump to use in his election campaign in 2020. And I don't see much this, that, that's pushing against him that, that tells me that he's not going to get back in. You know, it's, it's, there's a great special. Um, I'm assuming they have it in the States. We, we watched it um, just a week ago called The Family. It's on Netflix and it's about the evangelical movement in, in the U.S. And, they, um, and the series is fairly critical. Uh, of the movement, but but at the same time, it's interesting how they explain the evangelical support for Trump, uh, even though he's flawed as, as as a candidate and as a person. But how the evangelicals have managed to get their arms around him as a candidate, and I, one of the interesting takeaways, without getting too much into what they were saying, is that I think any erosion of that support by the evangelicals is is going to be crucial. And and to your point. Um, you know, I, I, in my own personal opinion, I think if Biden can skirt through the primaries and if he can stay reasonably, like he'll have to give a nod to the left, you know, to your point in terms of Sanders and Warren, but if he can scoot through that and then come back to the center, uh, I think Trump is in trouble. And, and, and I think that the, there, there's a lot of, you know, center right folks who would, who would vote for a Biden, uh, you know, as long as he's not taking, and again, I'm going to say this tongue in cheek, as long as he's not taking a socialist uh, Sanders Warren perspective on things, because I think that's what's really spooking folks at, at this point in time. Yeah, but Sanders Warren isn't really the socialist element. In it. If, if you think about how is the Democratic area shown today in the media in the U.S., it's more AOC. And, and, and uh, AOC is seen as, you know, very far left and... Uh, is being painted as being anti-Israel, and uh, you know that obviously is going to get the evangelical vote, obviously on the Trump side. And I think that what Trump's doing is he's managing to put the Democrats in a corner where they have to sort of go after that younger AOC vote. But what it's going to do is it ends up backfiring on them because folks realize that sure they may get you know a, a president that is more. Um, more mainstream, but at the same time, they don't want to spend all their money and all their taxes on, you know, what's being posted as essentially immigrants with free health care. Mm -hmm. That's how the Democrats right now are, are sort of posting themselves in the, in the media is that, look, you know, they want to have the immigrants coming in, no problem at all. Let's give them free health care, free housing. And Americans are sitting there saying, well, we don't get free health care and free housing. That's a problem. And I think, yeah, you know, it's a, a good oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. In that picture. You know, you know, it's interesting. And again, I'm not uh, just, just to, to put out another contrary view with, with what I found really interesting on the, you know, AOC and what do they refer to them as the gang of four or the, the, yeah. the what do they refer yeah, to? The, yeah. And what I thought was really interesting. And, and again, I'm not, you know, I can be very critical of this administration. And, and what was interesting was actually drilling into the causes of, of uh, the, I forgot, it wasn't AOC, but it was two of her colleagues who were banned from going or, you know, going to Israel. And what was really interesting about that was, you know, to your point was on the face of it, it, it looked like Israel and Trump were in cahoots and, and they were ganging up on, on the, these two representatives who wanted to go over. But what was really interesting, Doug, is when you peeled away the layers of the onion, it turned out that, in fact, they did have the opportunity to go with a bipartisan group to Israel. They chose not to. They chose to go instead with another group uh, that sponsored the trip that was actually anti-Israel. 
and it was it was interesting because that that detail and it was only now the Washington Post has begun discussing it. That was the detail that that provoked the incident. Was like, look, we we, and and again to your point on gaff versus racist, it was interesting to see how this was immediately grabbed as a. Uh, you know, an anti-Israel, anti-Netanyahu message when in fact they were approved to come as part of a bipartisan group. But in fact, they were, they were sponsored by this group. And it's interesting as you read these other uh, other accounts of this, where this group was pretty clear how strongly anti-Israel they were. Yeah. And, right. and, and yet somehow. And, and, that, and that's marketing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really where we're, I, I really, I really hope, um, yeah, and, and my concern there is that I I think that the the Democratic Party, which was always historically aligned with with uh, Israel, I, I just think it's fascinating that somehow that that could actually be a wedge issue now. And and I think you hit the the nail on the head where the party has to be really really concerned that subtleties like this are causing major divisive issues uh, for them. And I think it's got to be causing Pelosi nightmares. Yeah, I think that she's in some she's in a very much a hot seat um, in that. She can't really win if she wants to keep, you know, the very socialist side of the party. She has to start agreeing to things that have never really been part of the democratic equation, and that's going to be a big problem. What well, you know, just as we wrap here, what do you see then going into this? So, if you're Xi Jinping, and actually, let's have fun with one last thing that's actually very much in our backyard here. So, you've got Hong Kong doing its thing, and I'll purposely not express a view here because. Uh, that would be unfair. So if you're Xi Jinping, you've got Hong Kong starting to, to rustle in your backyard. You've got the trade talks going the way that they're going. You're getting subtle accusations that you're a currency manipulator. What do you what do you do here now if you're China? Do you just sit and wait this out and, and watch this unfold? Is there anything here that you have? You know, again, if you're Xi Jinping, do you have to do anything now at this point in time? Well, I think that Trump did something last week where he essentially suggested a sit-down meeting personally with uh, Xi. And, and, and what that meant was he's now put the Chinese face on the Hong Kong protests. And it's very subtle, and maybe he meant it, and maybe he didn't, but it meant that it sort of halted the ability for China to rush in troops immediately to quell what's going on in Hong Kong. Now, what's going on in Hong Kong, I think, is interesting that you know folks don't want the Chinese rule that seems to be growing and growing over there. And they'd rather that it, you know, sort of halts back a little bit. Uh, the Chinese are sort of saying in, in some uncertain terms that the CIA is behind all of this, but you know, who knows if it is or not. I think that the reality is China sees the Hong Kong thing as being a nuisance. They see the trade deal as being something that they can wait out and I think they could probably wait out both. And yeah. so I think that you know China's view right now is let's just wait and see what happens. Trump can't do anything other than talk and talk loudly, but he doesn't have a big stick. And that comes back to what we started this discussion with him, that Trump does have a big stick if he gets Congress around and he gives him the ability to switch it from doing tariffs on Chinese goods to a tax on Chinese buying of U.S. fixed income assets. Because if that switch was to happen, then China's got a bit of a problem. Yeah, I think your 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 assessment, and again, I, I did this on purpose. The, the, your, your assessment on Hong Kong, uh, is especially, is spot on. There, there, it seems that just waiting it out 
is the course. And what, what has been interesting out here to watch relative to the, uh, the press in the States, what, what people, I think in the States, people are thinking that these are very violent protests all the time. And, and even when the protesters occupied the Hong Kong airport, uh, the majority of that, in fact, a substantial portion of that was actually peaceful. Yeah, and, I agree with that. And, I think in the U.S. we do see them as being peaceful. And in the U.S., you know, we, we've seen what's going on in Hong Kong and what's going on in Paris. You know, when you see in Paris what's going on every Saturday, that seems to be much more violent. Yeah. And yet yeah. We're, not, we're not that concerned about what's happening in Paris. And so certainly we're concerned and, and you know, the radar is up on what's happening in Hong Kong but there is a, a huge notable aspect of the Hong Kong protests, and that is the peaceful side of it in that the folks that are protesting seem to be doing it in a very, very peaceful way. And mm -hmm. that's, you know, cer certainly getting to people's hearts in the U.S. and they're noticing that. And, you know, there's an anxiety about building Chinese presence on the border. And so it's sort of like, look, we've got peaceful protests in Hong Kong from the demonstrators versus what could be something that could be a disaster that's on the border. Let's just, you know, see if we can keep that border action, you know, to the side. And so I think that the U.S. is probably trying in the back doors to sort of stave off something bad from happening. I think that that's why, you know, Trump has put a, a Chinese face on what's going on. And, uh, you know, I guess we have to kind of sit back and wait and see. But in the meantime, I think that that the U.S. has to find a way to get China back to the bargaining table. I always thought for quite some time that that would be doing some sort of, uh, you know, plaza accord on the Chinese currency. And certainly the Chinese were very concerned about that and met with Japanese folks and said, what happened to you with the plaza accord? And obviously Japan got absolutely hosed with the plaza accord. But the U.S. could turn around at some point if it gets, you know, European approval and say, look, here's the thing. We're going to devalue the dollar. And Europe's going to devalue the euro versus the Chinese currency. And you guys are going to have to sit back and watch it. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, you know, sort of a, a, something that could happen. And that when you look at equity, excuse me, equity valuations, when you look at dollar valuations, when you look at the pressure that's going on around the globe, you need something big to happen, like a Plaza Accord 2.0, uh, you know, to get things back in check. And if you know there's one thing about Trump is he likes to do things big. And he would love to make it a Mar-a-Lago accord. He'd love to make it, you know, named after him, some way to get the, the economies all back in check again. And I see the much larger option as something that's very, very much on the cards as opposed to something small. So I see the U.S. doing something before 2020 to push China into doing something. If China won't do something, then I think that the U.S. would. Interesting. Well, on that note, Mr. Borthwick, I think we can end it on the note I won't qualify it as high or low, but on the note of a Mar-a-Lago Accord. And again, a pleasure as always having you here. And as much as I like to say that I hope it settles down for our next conversation, I have a feeling we'll have another five variables that uh, we'll be looking at very, very shortly. So again, thank you so much for, uh, for your time here today. Thank you very much. All right, my friend. We'll talk soon.